Hello, this is Lekka. I'm Lucy Dearlove. So I've got something a little bit different for you in this episode. As you'll know, if you're following the Lekka social media accounts, you definitely could not have avoided it there. I recently released a DIY print zine, which featured work from over 30 contributors. So that's uh, essays, recipes, lists, illustrations, photos, all sorts of beautiful food-related things, uh, all put in print together. And I am delighted to have sold out the first run and, as promised, have donated all the profits to Lewisham Food Bank. So I was really happy to be able to put a couple of hundred quid uh, their way. And thanks very much to everyone who made that possible. I had a little launch party for this scene where five of the contributors read their essays And I just felt like these five pieces out loud gave a really good kind of taster of what what I wanted to do with the zine and what what the experience of reading it felt like for me. And so I thought I'd share them here as a little mini audio version. So after this bit, you're going to hear a little section from my editor's letter to begin with and then readings from Octavia Bright, Jennifer Oberdike, Rhiannon Charbonnac, Ruby Dalay and Kelly Shearer. And before we start, I just wanted to say a really big thank you to Kelly Shearer and her husband, Andrew, who recently opened Middle Lane Market, which is a food and drink shop in Hornsey. They very generously hosted the zine launch party and we all had an absolute ball there. And if you live in North London, I couldn't recommend shopping there more. I mean, actually... It's probably worth the journey all the way from South London, to be honest. I am considering making regular trips. Highlights of things that they stock, which I was lucky enough to sample on the night or afterwards, having come away with a bag of things that I couldn't resist. So uh, there was this incredible comte. There was this amazing salami with cider and seaweed from uh, Cannon and Cannon. They have the best range of flavours of Tony's Chocolate Only I have ever seen. And also they have these brownies from the Luminary Bakery, which is that brilliant social enterprise bakery, which are maybe the best brownies I've ever had. But honestly, everything's amazing there and you will find it impossible to leave empty handed. Okay, let's get into it. I started a food podcast because I love talking to people about food. And by that I mean all people. Before they've listened, often people assume I just interview chefs or I talk about hot new restaurants or I record sous vide machines or whatever. And it's like, I'm not opposed to doing those things and there's nothing wrong with doing those things. But selfishly, Lekka is almost entirely exclusively reflective of my own interests in food. And these include, though are not restricted to, affordable delicious meals, creating or strengthening a community with what you cook, using the process of preparing food or eating to soothe yourself in some way, using meals to explore complicated notions of what home means to you, how threads of different foods can be traced through different cultures and across continents. Yeah, that sort of thing.
Although, as a side note, I would quite like to record a sous vide machine as some sort of ambient drone track for future use. So if you have one, hit me up. The first piece you're going to hear from the zine is from the writer Octavia Bright. Hi everyone. So this is a this is about my dad um, and his and his Alzheimer's and also chocolate digestive biscuits. Um, so f- fun and sad. <laughs> On chocolate digestives, my first word was biscuit, soon followed by half a biscuit, because I guess I'm a born negotiator. I like to think babies know the secrets of the cosmos, but the photographic evidence of my wide and vacant eyes suggests my tiny brain was in fact probably full of biscuit dreams and not deep existential truths. It turns out biscuits have been pretty central to my personal development. My half-brother bribed me into walking my first steps by brandishing a chocolate digestive, so these humble confections motivated me not only to speak, but also to move my toddling body. I get it from my father. They've always been his favourite thing to dunk in a cup of tea. Perfectly round, they have just enough crunch to satisfy teeth bored of hummus. Just taste a bit savoury, but with just enough chocolate on top to feel like a treat, but not so much that it would be greedy to have more than one. When I was little, my father was the chairman of a biscuit company called Huntley & Palmer, so we named our two ginger tomcats after them. Collectively, they were known as the ginger biscuits. They lived on my uncle's farm and left us the fruits of their nightly massacres on the kitchen steps, Voles, dormice, shrews. The cats were nice in a thuggish kind of way, but I've never been a huge fan of ginger biscuits. My father and I remain, however, devoted to chocolate digestives. McVitie's first started making them at their Harlesden factory in 1925, and my dad was born in 1931, so he's probably been eating them for about 84 years. When his Alzheimer's was diagnosed, I inhaled them by the packet in a trance. The sugar would reliably knock me out, and I'd sleep, forget for a bit, wake up, remember, eat more biscuits, forget. They became my transitional objects, a digestible security blanket. For him, I imagine the familiar flavour as a comforting link to parts of his life he can't access anymore, or at least not in the usual ways. But taste and smell are conduits of their own, and I hope as he dunks and bites he is somehow transported to his childhood in Essex, skipping school with Grey's knees and a packet in his pocket. We still eat them together each time I visit. We have a little ritual, except it's probably only a ritual for me, as most days his memory can't stretch to more than a handful of minutes before. I ask him if he needs anything. He says no. Cup of tea, maybe, I say? And he smiles, stumbles over a yes. And a biscuit? He beams, nods, and I go to the kitchen, put the kettle on. I put three biscuits on a saucer and stuff one, two in my mouth so the sugar might keep me sweet, a spell against the sadness that creeps in its shadow. Thank you. Such a biscuit forever. <laughs> that was Octavia Bright with On Chocolate Digestives. Octavia is one of several writers who submitted to the zine but uh, don't normally write about food. So that was really exciting to have something from her and uh, she also co-hosts the podcast Literary Friction so if you like the sound of her beautiful dulcet tones you should listen to that and these are two poems from Jennifer Obadike Um, so the first one's called Oranges, a Utilitarian Fruit 
On a lunch break in the park, he tossed a peel and then another, whole skin back in two deft movements at his feet. And as I walked, I turned back round, a look between us, a wholesome wish to pair his mind. And so I saw each place I went, the detritus of the city, skin curled at the corners of bus stops, forgotten like dog shit, left for the bin man to brush up, remains left behind after market, and on the streets in place of cars, our monsterhood quenched, our fingers sticky, a cheap fruit difficult to peel. And then we sat together during breakfast. He offered me an orange after sex. Oranges were not the sort of fruit I often ate. They were too messy and I refused to buy them. And if I did for health, I quartered them by knife and sucked up all the juice and bared my smile, only to be left with bits between my teeth that I could not dislodge by tongue or nail. He had stopped holding my breasts long ago. Now he rolled the orange in his palms. He had stopped touching me between the legs and even kissing me, and earlier, he'd fixed my waist between his hands and bent me as he wished. The offering of the orange was the kindest gesture he'd made all morning, so naturally I declined. And so he shrugged and plunged his thumb into its center until juice ran down and down, until he licked and peeled and popped into his mouth like a dribbling fool, no sense of repulsion, until I walked away to eat a peach and form my teeth around its guts. Okay, and so the companion piece to that is everyone writes about peaches when they are feeling frisky. <laughs> some of the peaches are ready, some of the peaches are not. Many of the peaches are gouged, only a few of the peaches are perfect. Whose fingers have handled them? Whose fingers have poked? It is summer again, and peaches never tasted so delicious. I'm holding a peach in my hand, trying to memorize the shape of the thing, trying to form my nails around its body, trying to scrape the flesh off slowly in strips of light, trying to squeeze the guts so the flesh bleeds through my fingers, trying to hold the small wonders of the world found days ago at market as I sulked. Everyone writes about peaches when they are feeling frisky. Everyone writes about peaches when they want heaven in their mouth. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jennifer. You just heard oranges, a utilitarian fruit, and everyone writes about peaches when they are feeling frisky. Both written and read by Jennifer Obadike. Next, we have Rhiannon Sharbanek. Okay, so this is I've Got This Craving For You. In Cardiff, the Romney Valley train lines run almost north-south. In the transitional phase between summer and autumn, returning home from a limpid day at work. I saw the red sun setting through the windows on one side of the carriage. Across the aisle, the light had died already into navy blue. Honestly, it was like God was separating whites and yolks in the sky, transferring the yolk to the other side of the mountain. I went down to my small house, home alone, thank goodness, cracked a Perlenbacher in the lonely, lovely kitchen. Chopped a red onion, they have more flavor, you said. 
leftover Lidl shallots too, grated some cheese which had been out for a couple of days. I had found an expensive pan in a skip a few weeks earlier when I had last seen you. I heated some olive oil, dumped onions and shallots in, coated in arborio rice, got out another cheaper pan, my grandmother's, and boiled Cardiff Council's finest. For some time afterward, I'm really not sure how long, I passed the boiling water from the cheap pan to the expensive, stirring all the while. I watched as the rice drank all the water up. It tasted dull, so I added half the Perlenbacher. You probably wouldn't have approved, but you weren't there. In front of the TV, fresh Perlenbacher to hand, I ate, truly pleased that I had managed to replicate the way you create this. A unified whole, but you can feel each individual grain against your tongue as well. There was an ad for mascara, which promised an application better than sex. <laughs> it must be good. I finished my risotto and Perlenbacher, a surprisingly complimentary pairing, and went to soak the pan licking the cheese, rice, onion, slime from the spatula. I've Got This Craving For You by Rhiannon Charbonneck. I'm Ruby. Can I clip this to your amazing coat? I don't know where, really. Maybe I'll just put it on here. There we go, there's plenty of... Hello, I'm Ruby. Um, I am just finding my page and now I've done that. Uh, my piece is about rice and identity. No matter how much I felt like I'll never be a proper Indian, cooking perfect rice is my little fist bump to self. I am Desi underneath it all. This jewellery, I think, kind of look like it now. <laughs> um, when you're a brown person who's never watched a Bollywood film, no need for two wardrobes, one Western, one traditional. I never really got British Asian Bangra, apart from that Punjabi MC song. Um, you can feel a little bit isolated from your own culture. You look, your skin looks the part on the outside, but underneath you just feel like a bit of an imposter. As an adult, I've made a real effort to go back to my roots, but with a broken Punjabi tongue and no gang of cousins to navigate it with, it's been tough to know where to begin. Then it struck me, staring at me through a turmeric-stained haze this whole time. Food. I threw myself into it, calling my mum and scribbling down recipes for home-cooked dishes that I craved, burning cumin seeds as I tried and failed to temper them in hot oil again and again and again, discovering that it was black cardamom that was missing from my rajma all along. But it was making perfect rice that really connected me back to where I'm from those nutty separate grains with no need to drain that made sense of my melanin to me. It came as naturally as picking out the right pair of nights for a rave. The first time I cooked chicken curry for my mates at art college, i.e. I was the only brown in town, it, it wasn't the spicy meat that stole the show. The spell I'd cast over the bubbling cauldron of rice was the real magic. I can do it because I'm brown and no one else can. <laughs> Uh, I wear this superpower with such pride that I wanted them to test me on it the first time I touched down on Indian soil. Yes, I am one of you. Underneath this, bur this burgundy passport cover, I too can create fluffy, fragrant grains 
if given enough soaking time and a lidded pan without steam holes. <laughs> Most things have sort of come into place after that. While I still can't tie a sari, there's nothing quite like a steamed bowl of rice and dal. That was Ruby Delay reading her piece, Basmati Rice. Lots of the pieces in the zine were quite serious and I loved that and I think food is something that people connect with on a deeply serious level and I think it's also something that has really serious consequences and implications for people and they have very complicated relationships with it so that makes sense that writing about it reflects that. But there was a few pieces in the zine that I thought were really funny and I loved that so much that we had that contrast and I think Ruby's piece that you just heard definitely fell into that as well Um, and just the way the lines are delivered like I love how she delivers that line about Nikes in the rave Kelly Shearer's piece which you're about to hear is just so funny and I wouldn't necessarily say it's light-hearted because I think because there's underlying themes that are quite complex but The way that it's written and the way it's put together is hilarious and it was so great to hear her read it. So this is Kelly Shearer with Fake Meat. (sighs) Okay. As a vegan, I was warned about cheese. One stretchy slice of pizza, a bite of even the most commercial processed stuff, how easy it was to fall off the wagon. I grew up in the Bible Belt, so I was all too familiar with guilt and restriction and I went about my veganism with a similar strand of puritanism. After a couple of years of being the only vegan I knew in a small town in West Texas, I felt like I'd hit the jackpot when I got a job working at a vegan diner that I'd frequented when visiting my sister a few hours away. Their tofu and nooch filled in for cheese and a boiled glutinous dough was sliced or chopped to substitute for everything from chicken to beef. Several months later, I found myself working in Oklahoma, working in a newly opened raw restaurant. There were no ovens. We used dehydrators, anti-griddles, and thermal immersion circulators. Preparing food like this without heating it above 105 degrees Fahrenheit was new, (laughs) and I loved the opportunity to experiment with ingredients and learn through trial and error. But preparation took hours, sometimes even a day or more, and most recipes could only be made in small batches. I'd be so hungry at work, but the only thing I could justify eating were strips of nori and avocados. At least I had four different sea salts to choose from. We were always behind on prep, and I didn't feel right eating any food that had taken so long to prepare. Ironically, my time at this hyper-healthy restaurant was probably the furthest I've ever been from eating that way, and I felt ashamed, obscuring from my coworkers the truth about what I ate. This double life actually started during my time at the diner. I'd made it for two years as a vegan in a place where those options didn't exist, but only eight months into working in a place with absolutely no animal products in sight, I teetered. My first cheat was an egg, fried over easy. Less than a week later, I was on a road trip, eating a burger topped with a hot dog and neon green relish at a heavy metal burger bar in Chicago. I've often wondered what set me on this path and whether working with vegan food was at least in part responsible for my falling away from it. Maybe it was cooking plate after plate of the inexplicably popular tofu scramble that led me to crave a real egg. Maybe it was the gluten-based seitan sausages, often abbreviated with 666 on our order tickets, that led me to order the goblin cock in Chicago. (laughs) Was the raw restaurant penance? I certainly believe that less processed raw food meant that I would be leaving behind fake meats and eggs, entering into a more wholesome and honest world of fruit and vegetables. At work, I went through a phase of existing on our superfood brownies. They were pretty good, 
and extremely grabbable, perfect for crouching beneath the open pass or sneaking into the walk-in for a quick bite before returning to the line. But like scripture should have said, women cannot live on chocolate alone. And for a while, I lost my taste for this stuff. So most days, after working 14 hours on Naria Green Smoothie, I'd get in my car and drive to the late-night pizza place on my way home. I'd order a large 18-inch diameter pizza, which I'd take back to my apartment and eat all by myself like a ravaged zombie, stuffing my face, barely stopping to breathe as I inhaled crust and cheese, only coming back to reality once the grease-stained box was empty. Eventually, I left the raw restaurant and Oklahoma in search of a more balanced life. There was still a tension, though, between the food I ate and the food I made for a living. I felt like a fraud as I continued working in vegan jobs. Another raw restaurant, a vegan restaurant within a Whole Foods market, and finally as the healthy eating specialist in one of their new stores in Austin. In that role, my job was to promote healthy eating according to their dietary outline, which was based on the nutrient density of foods, meaning that foods were rated on a scale of zero to a thousand. Oil, even olive oil, was off limits. So I used nuts and seeds as thickeners and pureed sauces, and I learned to water saute vegetables. Right before the shop opened, I had to give a staff presentation about the program. After my talk, a girl came up from the audience and introduced herself. She'd asked if I'd moved from Oklahoma, saying she used to live there before recently moving to Texas. How'd you know, I asked. Oh, you must have known me from the raw restaurant. The long hours I'd worked there meant I'd had no social life, so I couldn't imagine how else she would have known me. No, she said. I worked at Sauced. Used to come in every night and order a large pizza. <laughs> Kelly Shearer with Fake Meat. A huge thank you to Octavia, Jennifer, Rhiannon, Ruby and Kelly for reading their pieces at the launch. It was very much appreciated and I'm glad that you all get to hear them read them as well because... It was really lovely to hear those pieces out loud. I'd read every piece in the zine thousands of times when I was putting it together, but actually hearing them out loud felt like hearing them for the first time, and that was really powerful. So thank you. And thanks to everyone who bought a copy of the zine. And I'm sorry if you wanted to and you missed out. I am hoping to get a second print run in the next few weeks, hopefully before Christmas, though I'm not gonna make any promises just in case something dramatic happens. Stay following the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. I will definitely make sure you find out there first when the new run is going on sale. And you can also subscribe to the newsletter uh, at tinyletter.com forward slash lecker. And I send out a little letter with every episode uh, and occasionally the odd bonus one. I won't spam you, so don't worry. But just kind of little bits of bonus content, bits of interview that didn't get used, like just little extra things and... I think you'll really enjoy it, so do subscribe. And thanks for listening to this little bonus episode. I'll be back very soon with a proper full episode with a new person talking about food. I'll see you then.